0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki McDonald. This week, I chat with John Whalen, Chief Experience Officer at the digital development company, 10 Pearls, about the six minds that underlie each human experience, why it's important for designers to understand brain science, and how and why people interact differently with their voice assistants. Enjoy the episode. Hi, John. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. I appreciate it. Well, okay, let's get started. You've worked in UX for over a decade, but your background is in psychology and you have a PhD in cognitive science from Johns Hopkins. So tell us how your background in brain science has shaped your career as a designer and, and why it's important for product designers to better understand how the brain works. Sure.
1: No, thank you for asking that. So... um Really, I think the biggest thing there is that I, like any designers that are thinking about empathy and design thinking, you know, really try to understand our audience and think about their thoughts and how they're framing whatever they're looking for and the experience that they would like, in addition to what our clients are asking us to build. And so um, I think that uh, by knowing a little bit more about the brain, so what draws your attention and how you hold things in memory and how you make decisions and how emotions can cloud those decisions. and and the constellation of, of all the different pieces there actually, I think are, are really great to help us to make sure that we're really thinking like our audience and, and actually trying to discover really their frame of mind in when they're coming about, um, you know, picking a product or service and using it. So, so I think that's one of the biggest things is I, I think a little bit more like a psychologist and probably watching a little bit more of not just what they're saying, but how they're behaving to try to see what the underlying you know systems are though how the wheels are really turning under underlyingly
0: can you give us an example of a time where you know like a specific example of where like knowing how how the brain works or knowing something about how people will behave has helped you cre- you know uh in a, in a designing a product
1: sure so um I guess one example of that is uh, w- when we were looking at, uh, often when they're they're very technical things are a good example. So if we're thinking about, uh, you know, we've worked with systems for lawyers and accountants even, and in these situations um, they have this incredible body of knowledge. And depending on if you're a more junior person or more senior, the way you represent the information is completely different. So in one case you might sort of Google, hey, what's a merger? And the other case you might be really thinking about reverse triangle mergers and and section 368 of the code and all these different things that are intertwined and seeing actually how they represent language and how they're representing the concepts and then what are the concepts in their mind and how they're approaching problem solving is actually was really vital to us thinking about actually essentially having two products there. one for the more novice folks that were just trying to discover what am I talking about? And something for the really advanced people who are looking for something really hyper specific and knowing that they can tolerate a much more sophisticated kind of search or, um, you know, the terminology they're going to use is much more complex.
0: So you're, you're currently working on a book for us called Product Design for How People Think, which will be out next year. Um, In the book, you introduce the six minds that underlie each human experience and how designers can apply that knowledge to improve their products. So can you give us an overview of what the six minds are and how this knowledge applies to product designers, how they can use it?
1: Sure, absolutely. So, um, the notion here, and by the way, to all my college uh, cognitive science friends, uh, bear with me here, but, um, uh, you know, what we try to do is make it uh, sort of tractable to think about all the different um, systems that are in your head. And so, um, one of the things we're trying to do is is give you a, a, you know, a broad sense of here are some of the major um, pieces that you should be thinking about in, uh, you know, how your system is working. So, let me just try and describe these for you really quickly. So... Um, if we're thinking about looking at something, for example, the first thing you've got is all your um, visual attention and um, centers. So the things that literally recognize objects and have your um, eyes go to the location that they're most interested in that moment. So you've got your vision and attention. And from there, you need to recognize that objects, there would be some components of memory of other objects like that. And And also all the associations you have of when you first saw one of those as a kid and the one, your favorite one of those, if you've got a dog and, you know, your favorite pet. And and so you've got vision and attention. The second is memory. The third is if you're taking that dog for a walk, well, then you're doing things like uh, wayfinding. So you're really trying to find your way around in space. And uh, one of the interesting there is we have so many things now in our digital world that actually are void of 3D space. And yet you've got a huge part of your brain devoted to um, kind of where you are and and how to do things next and how you can move around. And so it'd be interesting to see how we can translate using that part of your brain for these more virtual worlds. Um, in addition, when you spot that favorite dog, you probably have... Um, all the linguistic terms in mind. So you've got, um, you know, a name for the dog and, and the dog itself. And it might be a poodle and it might be this kind of poodle. And, and then there's probably emotions that go along with that too. So we've got emotional content and ultimately all that together is there so that you can, um, you know, uh, make decisions and problem solve. So you might be trying to help your dog out. So in this case, you're really trying to, um, you know, use all that to accomplish some big goal. So just to review, I, I give you six different things there. One is um, vision and attention. The second was memory and all your sort of uh, preconceived ideas and, and your um, the ways you think the world works. The third was wayfinding. That was your ability to move around in space, or in this case, move around a virtual world perhaps. The fourth was um, language, so the ability to just have different linguistic terms, like I was speaking about those mergers versus reverse triangular mergers and the sophistication of your language um, associated with that is um, the emotional content there. And then lastly, all that is, you know, in service of making decisions and and, um, solving problems in your world. So those are some of the things that I think all encompass an experience. And and I just wanted people to think of it as not just a singular experience. We're like, wow, that's cool. But actually, there are all these other representations and ways, literally, you are truly thinking of these things that put together give you that singular experience. So that's the idea behind that.
0: So give, give an example of... Uh how you use it in your work. Like another, maybe a, I want to hear stories. I want to hear, I want to hear how, or advice you can give designers to, to take this knowledge and use it to create better products.
1: Sure. So, so um, really pragmatically, I mean, I think the first thing is that we often come to a product or service from the, the business side. And so we know what we want to accomplish. We know what we want the you know, end um, audience or users to do. We, um, basically we have our perspective that's in our bubble that is the company or entity. And I think it's so important to step out of that and talk to the real, um, audience. So, um, one of the things is just literally what are the end audiences expectations? So what, what memories do they have that might be at all related to the product you're building? So let's see. So uh, one example of, of this kind of thing is actually, we were working, uh, so it's so again a little bit unusual here, but we uh, met with farmers in the middle of Pennsylvania. And the reason why we did that is, uh, the, a bunch of folks who were uh, PhD experts in actually counterterrorism from uh, Los Alamos, of all places, had built a system for the FDA in order to help protect all our food supply, like, um, like the, um, literally the cows and the milk trucks and so on. And what they did is they built a tool to try to give farmers a way to, um, figure out, um, you know, what the most vulnerable parts of their farm were. However, you might imagine that these PhD statisticians from Los Alamos weren't as well versed in uh, what farmers in the middle of Pennsylvania really need to do. And so we started with really thinking about their perspective. How do they see their farm? How do they organize that space? What are they paying attention to? Um, What are the words that they are using on the farm? And they actually have actually much more specialized language than the Los Alamos statisticians did for different things like the connection to the milk truck from from uh, the um where they were pasteurizing it and so on. So so one of the things we do is really watch Bido you know, people in their native environment see the language they're using and just collect it. Um and also see how they're rep- in this case, we actually really did have to represent 3D space and drawing sort of a map of their farm to do this sort of tool. And and I think one of the other things is we learned very quickly. That despite we met with farmers in the middle of Pennsylvania and they truly some had coveralls, some had um, oil <laughs> on their fingers from the tractor, you know, things that me as a you know, city boy, I would come to expect. And the, the important part here was when we got to the emotional content in their decision making, I realized, you know, this is a good example of don't judge a book by the cover underlyingly, they had incredibly sophisticated strategies for keeping their farm going. They had exactly a plan for how to keep things properly organic and and avoid decom- you know, contamination across different locations in, say, animal farms and so on. And so we found so much that they were really passionate about and so much that they, you know, decisions that they made like, hey, don't dare let the FDA person come to my farm and step on, on my land with those same boots that he just came from at the last pig farm you know, with because they could be contaminated. You know, I'll give them a new set of boots. But so, you know, they they had incredible strategies that were uh, very sophisticated, but they were very different than what the original product owners had envisioned. And so, it was how do you link up those two mental models that are in memory? And it starts with sort of what are the representations that each group is using, and and how do we sort of bridge the two? So it is getting to those underlying mental models and the language, the words they're using, and how they expect. You know, what are our equivalent systems that they're expecting to use, and and the levers that they are used to pulling. So how can we make interfaces that are complementary to their existing knowledge? So there you go.
0: How much did that change the product from what they thought it was going to be?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, very dramatically, I guess it's a very, <laughs> <laughs> So I think I think one of the biggest things was um, they both agreed on having things in space in like two D space, drawing a map. Um, but from there, you know, all the wording changed, all the way that they actually. Organize the groupings so where the statisticians were thinking here's all the things that have to do with um uh you know this geographic part of space or, or this you know whole process um the farmers were thinking well here's the part where we basically get the milk from the cows here's where we process the milk here's how we transport the mu- milk and here's the connectors between them and each of those were sort of mentally very separate for them whereas for the um, statisticians it's like that was a that was sort of a unitary kind of thing and so knowing these different levels of representation were really helpful in making it you know much more understandable for the farmers what they were supposed to do. And it was simply because the two had not spoken enough and they hadn't really understood their audience
0: well enough. You know, audience research is so important. Like, you, understanding your users, that's pretty key to any kind of product development anymore. Um, um, but let's get back to the book for a minute. Later sure. in the book... You explain how our understanding of human cognition should impact the near future of artificial intelligence and in augmented reality. Can you talk more about that?
1: Absolutely. So um I, it maybe it's a little bit of a bold position, but but I would argue that um, historically, um the way that uh, artificial intelligence or or you know even even, um, uh, not sort of general artificial intelligence, but even uh, specific domain-specific um, attempts at artificial intelligence were often very much driven by a um, uh, almost like a, a linguistic, um, you know, a decision tree kind of process, or something that was constructed by humans and was very um, representational, but, you know, not at all um, abstract in that way. And they got to a certain point and were quite successful. But then um, more recently, with um, the advent of some of the things like um, the ability to do um, deeper recurrent networks and, and um, uh, you know being, going from historically what was neural networks to now deep learning, um, there have been great advances in just taking a set of data, let's say recognizing a set of pictures where you literally just give it pixel coordinates and colors, and then ask it to eventually figure out that there are objects in there, for example, and train it. And without giving it any representational qualities, these things have been quite successful. And so logically we went from having a 100% um, representation in order to build some sort of um, computer system that does some sort of artificial intelligence to something where we give it no representation but a learning algorithm. Um, and, and my argument would be that there is probably a happy middle to be had there where probably some of the things we know about how efficient our brains are and the ways that it has specialized systems should probably be um, in some ways experimented with to see if we can't, um, you know, have a hybrid of here in rather than just giving, say, pixels and colors, we might give um, here are line segments or here are things that we know the brain already computes in advance of recognizing objects, for example. So if we were to give it something that might be a little bit more synonymous with what our brains get as early representations before they come up with an object recognition, perhaps that learning tool might do even better. And so really, I think there's a happy medium between having this be 100% learned and being fully representational. And I think that probably there's some things that we can give to as an advantage to these deep learning models um, based on what we know about the brain.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, the book is going to be so great. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. You're also speaking at the O'Reilly AI conference this September about a research project where you asked a diverse group of people to try out the four major AI systems: you know, Siri, Cortana, Alexa, and and Google Assistant. Can you describe the study, uh, what you hope to learn from it, and any results that surprised you? Absolutely. So, um, really, you know, what we felt like was.
1: You know, I looked in the literature for just simply, you know, there there have been, uh, you know, comparisons in CNET or, you know, some of the, some of the common, um, I don't know, public news media that say, oh, you know, I like this one, uh, you know, Alexa better than Cortana for these reasons or, or those. But I hadn't seen a, uh, sort of in-depth comparison of them. And, and also, you know, we were curious. Because uh, the, the, so that was one piece. So we've got uh, gosh, why don't we do like a head-to-head test that we have people who are novices to these kind of things, or people who have some experience, and older and younger, and and you know have English as their first language and not, and truly see you know which systems are really doing the best at answering questions. Um, the second thing is that I kept seeing even just um, matter-of-factly, you know, what one of my friends said, hey, you know, to their daughter, you know, can you uh, turn on some music for us since we've got guests. And and she said, Sure, I'll, I'll tell her to play music and then said, Alexa, play some music. And, and so because it's giving these humanistic qualities to these tools, we also wondered if there was anything about the, um, really the emotional content to the experience that is more important than it is to say when you're typing in a Google search, or you're just looking up something on Amazon, for example. And so what we did is we did uh, use a a mix of individuals who had often no experience with these tools and then sometimes a a little bit of experience and um, went ahead and and tested these in two ways. Um, So, and it is actually a little bit more complicated than traditional usability testing because we essentially set it up like Jeopardy where perhaps we'd say, you know, Nikki, can you... Uh, So it it would just say something like, "Uh, Cincinnati, weather day after tomorrow. And so we would say that, in written form in a little bit cryptically so that the person was asked to create the command or, or request to the tool and so we can see how they generate that request and then we can also see did the tool actually produce the answer they were hoping for and then thirdly we looked at actually the biometric response then, that the person had to that response from their um, tool so they might for example have a positive facial expression, or they might have, it turns out that actually you have a a little bit of um, sweat when you're a little bit more nervous or your heart rate goes up. And so we can measure those things with little cuffs on your fingers. And so that's galvanic skin response and just heart rate. So we measured um, those three constellations of sort of an emotional response in addition to these just success-based things. And um, the other thing actually is we've followed up since we last spoke, and we also tested another tool called Hound. And it's not as well known as the others. It's been a startup for a while. Um, Some people know about, um, there's like a sound hound, which is actually you can hum something and it, it, it tries to figure out which song it is. But there's a more generalized one called Hound as well. And so we also tested that one because it's better at follow-up, actually, with someone and and sort of conversationally. Uh, But the key point here is that, yeah, we were able to to see which of these performed the best. And and it really turned out that of the options that we had at that time, and we've actually retested it just in the last few weeks, um, really Google Assistant or, or Google Home... Um, these are both have the same underlying technology, did the best of all of these, um, followed by um, Siri from Apple. And then the ones that came in, uh, essentially, you know, in third place were um, Cortana and Alexa um, by a a, reasonably significant margin. And then, you know, the interesting thing when we tested those four to start with, and I'll come back to Hound in a sec. um, And then we said, well, which one would be your favorite to take home? You know, just you know, which was your personal preference? You know, a lot of people did pick Google Assistant, which made all kinds of sense because that one did the best at answering questions. But then the second most popular by a, a wide margin was Alexa from from uh, Amazon's Echo. And despite actually being the least successful at um, answering questions. And so that was intriguing to us. And we kind of wondered why and and it turns out that um you know the folks who wanted who picked Google Assistant often you know described what they were looking for from he, from these systems as things like um uh well I just want the answer fast just the facts give give me the answer you know I I just want to know what what's happening and and some of the people who uh, preferred the Alexa uh, you know, by and far said things like, well, it answered the question the way I asked it, or I like that I can, you know, converse back and forth with it, or it, it makes me feel like I'm speaking to a human. So they're really humanistic kind of qualities that they really gravitated to with the Alexa, even its sound quality being one of the best was one of the things that was important to them because it felt more animate to them. And and actually the um the signature of people's emotional responses for those who pick Google Assistant. On average, tended to, to you know have more positive affect in terms of their heart rate and galvanic skin response and their and their facial recogni- emotions um, when they were using Google Assistant over others. And the people who liked Alexa best, same thing. Their heart rate went down, their um, sweat you know galvanic skin response went down um, when they were using Alexa relative to these other tools. And you know, so the interesting thing here is, despite having actual factual correctness um, be in your favor for for example siri the fact that it didn't have the kind of humanistic qualities they were looking for was really important so we can't just go out and test our systems to to be percent correct accurate we also need to think about this human component and i think that's the thing that i wasn't necessarily expecting to find you know we were curious about this humanistic quality but we didn't know how important it was so yeah that, those are some of the big findings there
0: so would you say that's going to be the most important thing to people um, going forward? Is that these devices act more more like humans? Well, certainly
1: they, um, you know. So all of these things did reasonably well, right? So we, they scored at least say sixty percent correct um, out of out of a uh, hundred. Um, but so absolutely they need to solve problems. But I guess it's just that um, as they get um, more personal and conversational, um, the more that that's going to be really important for a really positive experience, and you're not really going to tolerate ones that don't work that way. So let me give you actually another example here. So one of the other things we found in terms of the user experience with these voice-activated interfaces was that um, they um, it was really crucial to have the timing down. And this is something that really the programmers can can help to make better. So, for example, I think I gave you the, you know, what's the weather right now in, let's say, Madison, Wisconsin, then, you know, tomorrow, I might say, Hey, Siri, what's the weather in Madison, Wisconsin, tomorrow, and each time I paused, and that's very natural for all of us. And those are phrasal boundaries. But um, for the systems, they often heard what's the weather in, and then you paused until you said Madison, and it went ahead and just gave you the local weather because it ignored Madison. Or it got you to Madison, Wisconsin, and it completely ignored the fact that I want the day after tomorrow and gave you today's weather. So, and when it did that, they, you know, they would look at it or me, you know, with this frustration, like, oh, come on, you know, you know, a baby could figure that out because it really, you know, a, a very young kid totally could get that. And so, we do need to get it up to this level of proficiency in sort of the conversational tone that I think is really important. And, and so so, that's one of the pieces I think that struck me was how easily they failed to Pick up on that intonation and follow up, and and actually, if you don't mind me following up just for a moment, it's getting back to Hound because I didn't address yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, yeah, so so the other piece to that was, um, you know, sometimes and, and and some people did or didn't like Siri has a little bit more of a. I don't know, some people call it a sassy manner. So um, one example was we we had a more, we, we did some sort of business-like testing of like, you know, can you find the conference center or wherever? And other things were more personal. And one of the things that was kind of a fun one we did to see how people's emotional response would be is we said, you know, do aliens exist? We ask them to, you know, look up the, the existence of aliens, I think was exactly what we had posted. And so when one person asked, hey, Siri, do aliens exist? It said, and I'm sorry, my Siri just went off. I'll turn that off. Um, <laughs> it, it typically says something like, why don't you go ask your mother? And, uh, you know, which is, you know, OK, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun thing to do. But also some people might take it the wrong way. But uh, immediately that person said, is that some kind of joke? And, you know, they were kind of tongue-in-cheek in playing with this device, but because they didn't say, and I'll, try, I'll get my phone further away, um, uh, you know, Siri, is that some kind of joke, um, It uh, the result was that it didn't pay attention to them when they did that response, when they said, is that some kind of joke? And then it didn't speak back. And to you and I, it's like, huh, so it's like dissing me. And And, and so... So there was this play that we, that the computer was completely ignorant of that was really important and you know made this person have a perception at that time that I think actually can be much more successful. And, and going back to Hound, one of the things that was great about it was if you said, you know, what's the weather in Madison, Wisconsin the day after tomorrow? And it wonderfully did a good job at the weather today. You could say, what about tomorrow to it without saying Hound? What about tomorrow? You could just say, what about tomorrow? And it actually understood the context that you're talking about weather in Madison, Wisconsin, and continued to give you the weather tomorrow in Madison, Wisconsin, which is very natural for all of us. So, so that's one of the first to really try to bring together, here's what I heard from you a moment ago. And so I'm going to use that in addition to what I'm hearing just now and figure that there might be a contextual relationship, which makes perfect sense. Like you and I are having an interview and we're talking about a book and, you know, cognitive science. So I'm expecting to continue on that thread. And in the same way, um, you know, Hound is doing that and is actually very successful. And people were very surprised to see it, you know, outperform the others in that particular regard. And I think that's actually a real strong point. So I, I think you'll see more and more this notion of, you know, he, here's a... so. To going back to cognitive science, here's a mental representation that we've activated, like weather and a location in in space and a time frame. And, you know, potentially in a neural network, you can keep all those concepts warm while you're receiving a new input and have those, you know, impact the next statement. So absolutely, that's possible within these kind of tools. And typically, it's a little bit like um, uh, HM, who is uh, like in Saturday Night Live, uh, Mr. Short-Term Memory. Who, you know, you could uh, walk out of the room and come back in and he would forget that you, you would have ever spoken to him. And, uh, and so with HM, actually, this brain damaged patient that had suffered short term memory, that's exactly what Siri and Cortana are acting like, that they didn't remember what you did just a moment ago. And, and so we, there are lots of ways that we get frustrated with that. And then little kids have fun with it. They keep asking it the same joke over and over again and they still get the same response. So anyway, we, we, we as um, designers could do better, I guess is my point.
0: Well, you know that kind of leads into my—you've kind of maybe almost answered some of this question, but 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 that leads into my next question, which was how how do people differ in their interactions with these voice controls? You know, in the way they word their commands and what they want from the systems. Did you notice any any differences, um, kind of standard differences between I don't know men and women, children, um, and and if and, and how should design designers uh, use this information?
1: Sure. Um, We did, actually. And, you know, we weren't quite sure which of those distinctions, like older, younger, uh, you know, uh, male, female, uh, experienced with AI tools or not. You know, uh, some people, we had people self-refer to themselves as how tech savvy they were on a one through 10 scale. And, you know, we tried to look at all these sort of permutations to see, you know, what drives either success with the tool, or um, also, um, are there any you know, characteristics about the way that they're using, you know, interacting with them that are different across these people. And so, well, I think one of the big things that we found is that, the, first of all, the system overall in terms of age groups, it performed best for pretty much exactly the average age of a Google programmer. So <laughs> it's not surprising <laughs> that, you know, the people who programmed these had, you know, tried them out and, and you know, it's been optimized essentially for about that age group. And, and so, you know, some of us who are even older than a Google programmer, um, you know, would love to see it improve for all these groups. The other thing we saw is that there, there was sort of a, a bifurcation, And it really didn't fall along any particular lines, except for maybe their, their um, experience with some of these tools, where they would either be very telegraphic or very meandering in their command. So let me, let me try and give you an example. And, you know, from interviewing me, you probably already know which of these two <laughs> I am. But um, one of the groups would say something like, weather, Cincinnati, tomorrow um you know it's so a very like boom 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 and uh not have any extra words in there or they would they would also typically try that if it didn't work go right back and be like the weather in cincinnati tomorrow and, and then and, you know try again and say tomorrow's weather in cincinnati you know so so they just they they tried different combinations and were kind of probing to see what works and what doesn't with that particular system um the other folks would say something like you know Siri it would be so nice you would consider the possibility of perchance uh you know Sharing with me the weather because it might be inclement in Columbus, and I'm going the day after tomorrow, and and so you know you and I can follow along with this perfectly well. But you know these systems are just overwhelmed by all these extra terms, and so I I think you know in part the people who have some experience you know realize in today's world the most successful way to do it is to, to be just the facts and be very. It turns out actually sometimes a little bit of sentence construction helps. These tools, so actually being extremely telegraphic was actually detrimental, but but being direct was helpful for these tools, and um, so just knowing that you're going to have some folks that might be a little bit meandering, you know, there there were actually really nice recoveries that some of these tools did. So um, one of the reasons I think people liked Alexa was it said, "That's not something I'm I, I can handle yet, but I'm learning," you know. So it would try to say things gracefully that you know I'm I'm not sure yet. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not programmed to handle that yet or consider adding a skill for that over here. In contrast, other tools said something like, um, here's a Google search on that, you know, kind of like good luck. <laughs> and, and so, so we all felt kind of like, oh, that's all you're going to do for me. Um, and, and so I think there was this difference where something equally, you know, they were both like, I've got nothing for you. But in one hand, it was handled a little bit more gracefully. And and I think for these, in terms of design and how this could impact your design, uh, I'm confident that, you know, you will have some activation in your in your neural network from the meandering person and say, you know, were you speaking about the weather? Or was there something you wanted to, you know, information you wanted about Cincinnati? And that person would be very likely to say, yes, the weather, you know, that's what I said. And, and so... I think that actually there are ways that you can piece this together with people and, and not be as torturous as one of those telephone prompt you know, tools and yet get the, get the system what it needs to answer the question.
0: It's funny you mentioned that because I was just just now thinking that when are those telephone prompt tools going to improve? I mean, we have, we have these fantastic voice assistants and yet still, if I wanted to get through to my cable company, I have to go through that torturous, you know, endless entry system. And then eventually end up speaking to someone anyway. Why right. haven't they improved? I don't expect you to answer that, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I do know a little bit about that, actually. So, but but I don't think I can give you the bottom line answer. Um, certainly, it's true from their perspective that having you be bifurcated to the right kind of a person so that they don't have an initial question. And, and rather you get jumped to the right specialist immediately because some people, you know, know, for example, at an airline, you know, buying tickets versus um, helping to change a ticket versus, you know, something about billing. And, and so if you get to the right person right away, that person's expert in that so they can solve your question faster. So ultimately, you're actually getting a faster experience. But I, I think that also it could really be much more thoughtful and you know what are you trying to accomplish today and and uh but but not be too much like i don't know if you ever saw there was a episode of um uh, gosh where um kramer on um seinfeld uh pretended to be movie phone and anyway, <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember it, that. It, it would be like you know what what is the movie you were looking for and <laughs> and you know so but there could be a way that it's a little bit more conversational um that would be much more satisfying than you know one for this, two for this. And it is actually very hard when it's open-ended to have the appropriate question. So when they ask you, what are you trying to do? There are so many ways you can say the same thing that if they can just say, is it something to do with billing or something to do with new tickets or something to do with this? Um, you can answer those kind of questions quite well. and um, And then you feel like you're getting somewhere. So um, I, I think if there's any opportunity for those systems to never repeat themselves, I, I think the record was I had to give my account number four times to the system. <laughs> you know, you type it into the computer and then someone else asks me, well, what's your account number? And then they say, OK, I'll have to reroute you. And the person says, yep, what's your account? Exactly. And, and so surely there can be some more, you know, and the reason why you're upset is because you already feel like you've expressed that to that entity. And the interesting thing is that our neural networks are also actually connecting to many different databases. And so, you know, we're different representations. And so they have the same challenge, you know, as a singular tool that the overall company does
0: too. So, so we're getting there, but it's, it's coming slowly. Okay. I have a question that just came to me. So I don't, I don't even know if, if this is, I've, I've been wondering, you know, how much I mean, we're training these devices to be more like humans and be more conversational, but how much are they training us? like? how is our brain changing? Because you have to to interact with them now. You have to, like you said, you have to say things a certain way. You have to phrase things a specific way to get results. Is that changing how we think and how we speak and how we interact and how our brain works? Yeah. So, so, um, the answer
1: is that we're actually very good at changing our tone according to the, so let's start with humans, the person we're speaking to. So you'll see, um, for example, a, um, you know, I, I think one of the best examples is think of a, a little kid where they might be very nice to their grandma. They'd say, Oh, why can't I to their, you know, mom and look so upset and then, you know, three seconds later be like, Oh, that's so cool, Bobby's here. And so, you know, but but in each case they have a different way of speaking and a different way of addressing them and a different expectation for the result. And so we're actually very good at context and in being, you know, formal in the right cases and informal in others. And uh so what we we if the people who are more practiced with these have started to learn essentially a new language or a new way of interacting. And that's most prominent if you watch, say, you know, five to seven year olds, because this is this is one of the cases where their plasticity of their language is greatest then. And they're also very tolerant of testing different hypotheses and, and, you know, they're not saying hypotheses, but they're they're trying different things with it to see what will work and what responses they can get and are delayed at the responses and can keep, have the time to keep hammering away to practice. And so, um, so it turns out that they're the ones that actually have had their language change the most and we're the ones having the most trouble with the system. So it it is this balance where, um, you know, I, I think that we are learning to speak to these things I don't know about you, but I, I'm getting better at, uh, so after all this practice with all these tools, I, I now have these systems in my car as well. And so I can, for example, you know, uh, dictate a text to one of these systems, and you learn to talk very clearly with each word. And, and you know, and you can get it to be virtually 100% at dictation um, when you're doing that. Now, when I say Nikki, it might not be very good at the spelling of your particular name, but Um, You know, with just general mass nouns and stuff, it does quite well. So so you do learn to have this sort of specialized way of interacting with these tools that's slightly different. And the people who just talk to them like a normal human have actually real trouble with it. And we've also found that it had enormous trouble with um, some people's accents. So if they weren't um, speaking in English, but were um, uh, some of the folks we had were, gosh, it was a, a native Czechoslovakian. And someone else was from, uh, gosh, was it Estonia? And anyway, the, 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 it, was, it was in that, um, you know, Eastern European broadly to, to um, Russian area, you know, some of the languages there were ones that they were more familiar with. And um, the tools, you know, they said what I thought was a very appropriate command. And the tools got a tiny fraction of what they, um, you know, dictated. And so I got what it was, but the tools were very poor. So it is true that it's still, you know, speaking in this case very much in American English. And so having the flexibility to be better at other things would be good. I, I actually had some people in our most recent round who were more familiar with some of these tools say, Oh, yeah, this one isn't doing even though I have this tool at home, it's not doing as well, because it's more practiced with me, you know, on my machine. So if we were to run this on my phone, it would do better. So it does sound like they're actually working on having it be trained for that individual.
0: Okay, here's a question. then How, how predictive should these AI systems be? When does it become creepy? And and what is the designer's role in setting limits?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a, a, one of the things we asked after these were finished. Are questions like, um, "Well, how much would you like this to know about you?" Like, um, for example, you know, Amazon knows how often you've bought toothpaste, so you know it could probably predict you're probably running low in toothpaste. So, so it could ask on a random Tuesday, you know, "Gosh, you know, Nikki, are are do you would you like some more toothpaste?" and you're thinking, how did it know? And where is it finding, you know, where is it looking? And did it have a camera? And who else is in the room? And, you know, so, you know, there are things that the mathematical models that can predict these things quite well. Or let me give you another situation where it could just be very helpful. And and in this situation, it's, um, uh, you know, I, I went, I'm Canadian. And so I um, had in my calendar that I was going to Dulles Airport to fly to Toronto. And logically in the morning, because it knew where I was in space because of location monitoring, it could well have said, you know, hey John, I think you're about to leave for work. Did you bring your passport with you? And and you know because I need to and if I didn't remember it that would be a big problem. So so there can be all these ways that it can actually, you know, I would call that augment your cognition. And you know, we we already do this. We're already, you know, in some ways cyborgs every time we use Google Maps or every time we, you know, Google a price to make a decision on on, you know, choosing something. So there are a lot of ways this works, and we are very comfortable with it now. You know, finding out the weather in advance. Okay, well, that's actually augmenting what we know, and and you know, helping us make decisions better. So, so it can keep doing this. It's just we're not used to it doing it in space and time, and we're not used to it being as predictive. We're used to asking it a question and then receiving the answer, as opposed to it anticipating that you might need this answer. So, there are some situations where we're now used to it, like both on Google, um, just uh, on standard Google. Or Android phone it typically has a card that says, you know, around five in the afternoon. Hey, your the drive home is about this long. Or um, it might also say, hey, you know, it's going to be sunny in us today around eight in the morning. And and we don't find that creepy. And in the same way, we're actually augmenting our performance every time we turn on an alarm clock. And we don't think of that as a creepy, you know, <laughs> tool. We're used to that helping us with our performance. So and now, for example, in cars. We're seeing more of them um, where uh, my new car, for example, um, will beep at me when I'm getting close to the rear end of another car and it thinks that I need to hit the brakes harder. Um, So it's like, you know, reminder, pay attention up to what's in front of you. So um, in that case, it's augmenting my cognition. And I'm okay with that because it's reminding me. Sometimes you're like, I know, I know. But gradually, I think there will be more and more of this that it does for us. And so the question is, how much does it actually shape our decision-making as opposed to just support our decision-making because we can use tools to help bias people's decisions for the better like you know hey you better get home so you've got time to exercise or don't forget you know today you were going to do have a salad so you need to stop by the store and here's the closest one so um so there could be ways that this does actually start to shape our behavior and that's one of the interesting you know like a lot of the fitness tools are trying right now.
0: Right. But that brings up some ethical issues, right? I mean, you can, you can use it to shape behaviors, but should you, I mean, is that a question designers should be asking themselves?
1: Right. So I think, I think one of the things here is that we can, uh, so uh, yeah, I, So first of all, yes, they should be asking that question (laughs) themselves, absolutely. And and I think probably the the best way to frame this is what are the, you know, end audiences ultimately trying to accomplish and what are the ways that we can bring them closer to their personal goals as opposed to any goals we have, like buy more soap from wherever. So I, I do think that there are ways that we can just measure what are the represent, what are the ultimate goals that people have? And when we talk about emotional content, you're generally thinking about just um, you know, immediate, short-term kind of emotion, but you know, there are much longer-term goals all of us have. You know, where do you want to be in two years or three years or um, seven? And and what does it mean to you to be successful? And you know, if these systems can be a little bit more cognizant of that, it could actually drive much more um, positive behavior in in people and really have them potentially have happier outcomes. So I do think that that there are actually very nice ways that this can be supportive of the end human, as opposed to maybe know, distorting what they're doing to some end goal for a business. So I think ultimately, the closer it aligns with your personal goals, the more you're likely to be positively responding to it.
0: I wonder if this has anything to do with the fact that you're Canadian, that you're so 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 positive. <laughs> 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 you, you, I like that you see the, the good side of, of it all. Like it's, it's going to be for the best. People are going to use it for the best possible way. I think that might be because you're a nice person. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if that has anything to do with your Canadian citizenship or not, but I think it might be, it might be.
1: <laughs> well, um,
0: definitely. oh yeah go ahead no I was just going I was just going to ask I was going to ask uh, you to tell tell people a little bit about you know where you work now I mean you'd worked for gosh five how long five years at your own agency your own consultancy and then in January you joined Temporal. so I was Wanting you to tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and what your company's doing now what your role is um, there.
1: Absolutely. So yes, my so um, I had uh, my own little firm called Brilliant Experience, a, a boutique, uh, you know, user experience and research and strategy consultancy. And uh, really, I think that um, what I founded, I had actually partnered with this other company, Ten Pearls, and because they were um, wonderful at developing almost anything, and really just needed to understand what it was they should build and could go from there. And we were great at getting everyone up to here's a great opportunity. Here's a wonderful prototype. It's been tested and, and, you know, validated and it's ready to be built. And so you can see that in the one hand, we had everything up to creating something, um, you know, in terms of developing it, um, for enterprise you know, architecture and so on. And we had a group here who could develop in almost anything for enterprise architecture, but wasn't sure what to build. So together, that makes a perfect complement. And, and I think that as a group, we really talk about how we try to build intelligent experiences. And this really goes two ways. One is that we need the systems underlyingly to have enough um, you know, sophistication in the database where the representations are building in order to be a little bit predictive or, you know, support what you're really trying to accomplish and not just be, you know, a very routine search and results, whatever. Um, so it, it needs to be, um, intelligent in that way, but it also needs to be a great humanistic experience. So we're really trying to put together what we need to do from AI and machine learning and even just, you know, a classic adaptive systems that may not have those, those other tools and just make it really supportive of what people are trying to accomplish. And so really we could only get so far as a group, um, in brilliant experience without that underlying, uh, technology capability. And in today's world with these AI tools, now we're able to actually create these and not just predict what will be successful. And, and so going from, you know, a twinkle in someone's eye through um, final enterprise launch um, is very rewarding. And so I'm, I'm really enjoying that, that piece of it.
0: That's great. I'm, I'm, it's it's so exciting. It's a, it's a new, the whole, you know, a new start a new company, a new, lots of new products. Um, new stuff, right? So what's, what's next? That's always, we're getting ready to kind of wrap up the interview. I, I like to ask people, you know, you know, what's next where in your opinion is augmented cognition headed next?
1: Sure. So, um, and, and actually it's interesting the way you said that. So, um, it turns out that there's, um, uh, you know, augmented reality is this notion of, of, you know, Hey, for example, if you're putting on, um, uh, your HoloLens from Microsoft, and it basically projects other things in space, and you can continue to see space as opposed to everything being included in VR. But in the notion of augmented cognition is really that we're trying to make you, you know, perform better as a human. So I think that increasing, you know, we started with basic things like, oh, I can check my email or I can make a phone call with this fancy thing called a cell phone. And and now we're getting much more into, you know, basically talking to this machine or um, having it help us to remind us, hey, this, you know, there's a sale right now on tickets to Toronto, you might want to go. And so increasingly, as it's better at anticipating our natural flow, it can support that natural, you know, the goals that we've got. And so I, th- I think it really is the, the next wave is being gentle, but supportive in, in predicting what you're trying to accomplish at that moment. And I think that we have traditionally had something like Siri be as delighted to answer about the weather in the middle of the night as it is when we're in the middle of a soccer field, you know, with a cloud, dark cloud over our heads. And so I think that the more it can anticipate you were about at this stage and you know, time or, or this date, and um, also that you have typically these kind of experiences, well, that can help to limit, you know, here are some of the more successful ways that you might be able to help someone. So, for example... I've got a, what I consider enough degrees. And I've had, you know, emails say, Hey, wouldn't you like to get another degree online? And <laughs> I, I think I've got that covered. So, you know, the more it can start to be predictive in that way, though, I think the more actually it can really augment our cognition. And I think the way it can be just a little bit better like Hound is in talking back and forth and conversing with us more naturally, it'll be much more successful too in, in getting that goal reached. So there you go.
0: So, what are some other specific ways? I mean, what are you're, you're working in helping people perform better? What are some areas where we could perform better? Um, maybe if beyond just you know, I, I think answering questions conversationally, or you know, but beyond what we're doing, you know, the reminders that we get now, like what is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me let me give you an example. Um, so if I go back to I know we've picked um, somewhat unusual examples today, but I'll, I'll go back to our, our tax experts, just because it's like an esoteric field. And many of us work in something, you know, whether you're working in a specific type of, of code, if you're someone with O'Reilly and thinking about, um, you know, Accenture or, or um, AngularJS or something, or someone in this case, who knows arcane tax knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So In this case, currently, they try to search these tools and kind of struggle and really have to dive in really carefully to pages and pages and pages of text. Keep in mind, there's you know probably a thousand pages of the code, and that's associated with ten thousand pages of regulations, which are associated with you know a million cases. And so it's like an overwhelming quantity of information. And so the interesting thing here is they say, well, I only want the things that are to do with mergers. I don't want things to do with the state tax, and I only want things with the U.S. I don't want international right now. You know, as they're speaking to me, they say these things. But it would be so natural for this tool to help to automatically segment what they're doing by simply having them talk to it a little bit. It could get them to the answer much faster. And you know, I'm looking for this, but not this. I might expect to find this. And in a search bar, you can't say, "I'm expecting this kind of information," or "It's probably related to this." And but with a AI tool, that would be entirely possible. So I think actually much more of our um, our day to day job work. Actually is likely to be supported by these tools. So I have seen things recently that are a little bit fanciful in some of the, you know, McKinsey kind of um, articles speaking a little bit about the, you know, human computer job as opposed to the human job. And and I think that's true, that increasingly we're going to have these tools that are going to be much more effective at not just giving us the weather or, you know, I want to buy the tickets to the concert, but something much more sophisticated that we're looking for. Like, yeah, my kid has this health problem, but not this one. And I think it's this because of this picture. And, you know, you can give it a picture, you can give it sound, you can give it, you know, lots of different things, and then it can be helpful. So I think in many specialty areas, so in medicine, in even in, in high tech and in um, these sort of specialized fields, all kinds of them, science and, and you know actually finding research papers is another excellent example where there are things that we as humans can't put together logically, but the pattern exists in the, in the data and so we can bring it out with these tools.
0: Fascinating. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today, John. I really appreciate having you on the show. Um, would you tell people where they can find you online, if they want to follow you or learn more about you?
1: Oh, sure, absolutely. So um, I am—I I must be showing my age because my Twitter is my name, John Whalen. <laughs> and uh, let's see, I guess on, on LinkedIn, I'm LinkedIn slash, what is that, uh, in and then slash John Whalen. So um, those are a couple ways to get started. And uh, also, my uh, company right now is uh, 10pearls.com. So it's 10pearls, plural, dot com. And so it actually, I'm pretty good at, you just type in John Whalen into Google as well. Maybe Siri will find me. And so there you go.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, it was great having you on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Nikki. I really much appreciate you giving me the time.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find John Whalen on Twitter at John Whalen. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and rate us in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.